I tell you, there's nothing better than being a bunch of messed up people who come together and been saved by Jesus. There's nothing better than that. And we're all a mess. We've all been broken people. We've all been shameful. We've done shameful things. We've all rebelled against God. But praise God for his mercy, right? And his grace. That's why we're here. That's why Easter Sunday is such a special Sunday. And the world has to take notice, right? They know we're together. And they know what we're talking about. And there's nothing like Christ, knowing him risen from the dead. The world needs hope. There's no greater message that needed for our world than hope. You Google the word hope, you'll get over 6 million responses. There are 55,555 people in the United States that have the first name Hope. Even Hope Solo, great soccer star. Miley Cyrus's middle name is Hope. Didn't know that, did you? Who'd have thought you learned it in church, right? There's comedian Bob Hope. Uh, there are four people, four ladies in our church by the name of Hope. You can travel to and, and, and visit Hope, in, Hope, full, Hope, Hope, something, New Hope, Indiana. There's Hopewell, Indiana. There is Hope Town, Indiana. Hope is the name of a great diamond. Hope was Obama's presidential theme, and it's on the heart of every player for Villanova and Michigan for tomorrow night, right? <laughs> every person to varying degrees needs hope. We all go through seasons of life where we have a little hint of what hopelessness is. You've been there before, perhaps, when a mate walked out, when a parent failed you, when you got a bad health report, <laughs> you know, when, when it seemed like you were never going to get a job, you wonder how the finances were ever going to work themselves out. I mean, who hasn't been close to a period of despair in life? And that's why Jesus Christ is so significantly important to us in life. Not that, not that everything is easily fixed. That's not what it's about. But it's that there's someone to walk with us in life's most difficult journeys. The two in our text today, in Luke chapter 24, is my favorite uh, resurrection scene. I love this scene because it's so real. It's so honest. It's so straightforward. Here it is in Luke 24, these two. Uh, one's named and one isn't. One's named Cleopas. The one isn't. I always thought, sheesh, if I were ever in the Bible, I would certainly be the nameless one probably. So in our text, there's Cleopas and the other guy. I'd be the other guy. Here we are, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. What's that mean? He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, in the third day since all this took place, in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of the companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are, 
and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened, and they said to each other, were not our eyes burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? This is a text we need. It's a text for the whole world. It's a text for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us on the edges, for skeptics, for those who don't believe God even exists because this is a message of great hope. I don't know where you are today in faith. Many of us here are rooted in the truth of the resurrection. Some of you here, maybe just to be with family. It's a family day. Maybe, you are, maybe you've moved from belief at one time to skepticism or atheism. Maybe all over the page. We're just glad you're here because there's possibility when we're here together. And I believe that we all need a message of hope. These two needed a message of hope. They were in despair. And maybe you do. If you don't today, you'll need one. You'll need a message sometime. And maybe some of this can, you can call to mind. These two were rising to a new kind of heart. First of all, they were rising to a healed heart. Jesus is so great at doing that. These two were so discouraged. They were dark in their thinking. You can almost hear their feet shuffling along in their sadness. The stranger slips up to them. And notice they speak in the past tense. He was a prophet. He was handed over. He was crucified. He, we had hoped. Their hopes were dashed. And hope is a fragile commodity so often because the world's kind of hope doesn't have any substance. There's, no, there's nothing to it. It's an empty kind of hope. It's a, it's a kind of just, just wishing that all things will work out. And that's not what Christian hope is all about. Our hope is rooted in the truthfulness of who Jesus is and the truth of his resurrection. Eleven different times at least he appeared to people after his resurrection one time to four, 500 people at one time. And they give testimony about seeing him alive. Perhaps you need this kind of message of hope today. You may feel totally without hope today, but there's no need to be that way. You know, they were rising to this healed heart because of Jesus Christ and needed that because they were so wounded. Life is a risk. It is, isn't it? I mean, you can't live life and not be bruised. Now, some people can resist bruises better than others. My daughter was in a, our, our middle child is a daughter, and she was in a bad wreck uh, in northern Indiana years ago. I say a bad wreck. I mean, she flipped the car, turned 180, landed upright. She didn't even have an ache the day after. Unbelievable. On the other hand, I think of my 90-year-old, my, my mother, when she was 90 years old, before she died, she would go through a doorway and just brush the, the door the door jammed, and she's, well, I'm going to have a bruise there. And bless her, I mean, her whole arm was just black. If you've had elderly parents, you know how, how tissue paper thin their skin becomes and how thin their blood is, and you just touch the skin, and it's so fragile. And sometimes people in life, it's the same kind of thing. You can go through bruises, and people seem to be resilient to bruises. And other people, it just it doesn't take much, and they're wounded. But regardless... The major bruise in life is death itself, right? There's, there's no greater bruise than that one. And Jesus came to take care of that one. 
He is the great physician, and he is able to touch us and anoint us and be the balm for all the bruises and the wounds we get in life, no matter what shape they come in. Let Christ be your hope. He also is raising them to an enlightened heart, not just a healed heart, but an enlightened heart. It says here in the middle of the text, that interesting statement, they were kept from recognizing him. Now, I don't know if that means supernaturally they were kept from recognizing him. Sometimes when you've seen movies, Jesus has his cloak on, and he's got this hood up, and he's going like this, you know. I don't think so, uh, but could have been. They were kept from recognizing him. Maybe it was God, but maybe it was just them. I mean, I run into people I knew 20 years ago, and they stare at me when I say hi. I know I do not look like I did 20 years ago. It's a very harsh moment in my life. Um, why? How, I believe this was self-imposed, that they didn't recognize Jesus. Here's why. First of all, Jesus was so extraordinarily ordinary. What I mean by that is so many people, they're looking for Jesus and the extraordinary, the experiences to zap them and wow them. And my experience is Jesus is pretty ordinary. He came as a baby. He was one of us. He lived like us. He was tempted in every way that we've been tempted, yet was without sin. I don't think there was anything about his physical appearance, walking from town to town, that people would stand up and take notice. Nothing about it. He was extraordinary, ordinary. In fact, there were, there were other books circulating in the New Testament, claim, uh, circulating in the first century world, claiming to be a part of, of inspired scripture. They didn't make it in the collection of books because there were wild tales about the resurrection. I mean, when Jesus comes out of the tomb, the first person he sees is Mary, and what's he do? Hi. He says, greetings. That's all he says, greetings. We expect him to do something a little more exciting than that, you know. No, he didn't do it. Here on the, two, on the road to Emmaus, what's he do? He just starts walking with them. That's the way of the Lord, I think. You don't have to look for him in dramatic ways. You don't have to wait for your life to be shaken and see some miracle or some dramatic thing. All you have to do is meet him in the pages of Scripture as a real person who walked the earth, God's son, the Savior of the world. That's who they met that day. Listen to Jim's story. I think it's a pretty typical story, but it's one in which Jesus got a hold of him and changed his life. I grew up in the church, went to church every Wednesday and Sunday was baptized when I was like 11 years old, but never had a true relationship with Christ. Got in a lot of trouble growing up, drugs, alcohol. I always say I had skin deep faith. I knew who God was, I believed in God. If you asked me, do you believe in God? I would say, yeah, I believe in God. But to actually know who God was, totally different story. I was lost. I tried to kill myself when I was 16 years old. I uh, ran a car into a tree at 85 miles an hour. Shouldn't be alive today. But that time in my life when I was like 15 to 17, my parents were going through struggles. You know, I was going through struggles. At that age, you think that your girlfriend is your life, you know, and things like that. So. Um, relationships, you, you bank everything on those kind of things instead of, you know, having a um, true relationship with Christ. I went to Bible college, um, 
out of high school. I thought, I thought that by going to Bible college, I could change you know, my ways. Ultimately, I found the same type of friends in college that I found in high school. So here I was at Bible college, still doing drugs, still partying. So ultimately, I wound up dropping out of Bible college and then going in the Air Force. Once I went into the military and went overseas and was in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, uh, kind of wake up call. You start getting, you know, you, you, hit, you, hit, you hit your knees a lot more. I've always been kind of a happy-go-lucky guy. My younger years, it was kind of almost like um, a cover-up. Um, but, you know, as I got older, um, I realized that my true joy comes from Christ. I have my own faith. I, I read the Word every day. And, you know, I have a relationship with God. And I have a true joy now instead of trying to find joy in lots of other things. When I was, when I was younger, I thought, how... How could there even be a place for me in heaven? The mistakes I've made, the things I've done. But I finally came to the reality as an adult that my past is my past. I can't change it. It's all about grace. Um, he is faithful to forgive us. We have to forgive ourselves. I have started understanding that forgiveness better. He tells us, you know, that He forgives us as far as the East is from the West. So each morning when we get up, it's a new day. It doesn't have to be anything major, just a, re a realization that I'm kind of foolish trying to do this life by myself. And I don't know what He's doing to get your attention, to go deeper with Him, to be more serious about the faith you already have or to create one, but Jesus is all about that. He's extraordinarily ordinary, yet he's an extraordinary Savior, extraordinary God. I think these two are kept from recognizing also because Jesus came to offer a different kind of redemption. Verse 21 says, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They still were expecting a political redeemer, someone to save Israel from Roman oppression. So they had a very limited view of what Messiah was all about. But Jesus had a, a something greater for them. My wife is really odd in reading novels. I mean, she'll, she'll get into it, and then she jumps to the end to read how it ends and goes back and follows all the clueless people and how they're going to figure it out. <laughs> That's sort of how we are today, you know? We know the end of the story. We know what's coming. We know, finally, how the world is going to end when the heavens open and Jesus comes back and every eye will see him and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, right? That's what's coming. And so right now... While there's a lot of clueless people, we are loving them, we are watching them, we are walking with them, we care about them deeply, we minister to them, we serve them, because there is something greater for them than they understand, a different kind of redemption than they know they even need. Jesus also came to offer a life with a resurrection. That's the third reason I think these were kept from recognizing him. They were looking at life without a resurrection. And lots of people live that way. They live a life without resurrection eyes. And when you do that, you're in trouble every time. What are you supposed to do with this world and this life if you don't have resurrection eyes? And all the while, I believe, I truly believe, 
The Lord is nearer to the peoples of the earth than we even have a clue. He calls he's the hound of heaven. That's one author writes, a hound of heaven. He is always hunting down people he has passionate love for, which is everybody. He died for the whole world. And so he's, he's always out looking for people. This week we were at Lake Erie for a few days over spring break. I know how stupid, you know, most people go to Florida over spring break. We go north. What's wrong with that picture? But we had two of our grandsons with us, Graham and Ethan. They're uh, five and seven. And so I was walking with them along, the, uh, along Lake Erie, and they were going from rock to rock. And uh, every now and then, as they were way ahead of me, they'd stop and look back just to make sure Gramps was there. And you know, through all the passageways of your life, I mean, that's one of the reasons we come together, to keep reminding one another, he is so near. He is so close to us. Even we feel like throwing in the towel. He is Lord. He loves his own. He never abandons us. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you don't know his presence in life, he is hunting you down. And he wants you desperately. And I hope you'll surrender to him before you stand before the Lord. You know, see, see when you have resurrection eyes, it means, it, it means you see well enough to get up each day and face the day with confidence. When you have resurrection eyes, it means you will see well enough to serve when your energy is depleted. It means you're, you can see well enough to know God's mercy and his compassion to you is new every morning. He never fails. To have resurrection eyes is to see well enough to forgive those who have hurt you. To see well enough is to be a, be a, be, be a great spouse even when your spouse isn't. To have resurrection eyes is to see well enough to be a great employee even when you have a lousy boss because you know you're answerable to God first. It's to, it's to see well enough to trust God will provide your needs, to see well enough that you know Jesus is walking with you, even when your pain wants to erase that truth. It's not true. He'll give you eyes to see. He gives you an enlightened heart. And third, he raises us to a burning heart. Jesus was about to leave them. He said, oh, go, come home with us. We find you very interesting. They didn't know at that moment who it was. Verse 32 says, when they were reflecting, were not our hearts burning within us? when he talked with us. And you remember when their eyes were opened, it's when they broke bread together and he gave thanks. That's why the Lord's Supper is so precious to us. We're going to have this meal together in a few minutes. It's just a little cup and a little piece of bread without yeast. But it's a feast for those who are in Christ Jesus. And here, every time we take it, our eyes are focused again. We remember what it's all about. We remember who died for us, who loved us with an infinite love, who has forgiven us, and what life is going on, what's going on in life, and what the ultimate destination is. Praise God for that. We're not our hearts burning within us. And it says here, um, it, it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And because we're so egocentric, when we read the Bible, we often read it in a moralistic way or Aesop fable-ish kind of way. Like you read something, okay, what's this got for me? Which is the total wrong way to approach Scripture. He, get, he, told, he told them all the Scriptures about himself. When you, when you study the Bible, first, it's all about Jesus Christ. Because you see, you can get inspired by some Bible stories, but eventually it'll crush you. If you treat it that way, like David and Goliath, I mean, what a great story. Who doesn't get inspired for a little while by David and Goliath? The little boy slays the giant. Yeah, go David. But David also trips and falls in his life. 
He doesn't deal with greater giants very well, and nor will we. There are times that our giants are so big, they are so big, that there's no way they're going to fall. But there is one who is ruler over all, that he walks with me in the midst of giants in the land, and he helps me walk in confidence and hope, right? That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Life is filled with giants, and not all of them go away. But with Jesus, he always gives you victory. He always gives you victory, not over that particular giant, but he makes you strong enough to deal with it and keep going and be productive in your life. He's the hero of all heroes. He's the, he's the prophet above all prophets, the priest above all priests, the king above all kings. That's who Jesus is. All of us find ourselves on the Emmaus Road sometimes in different seasons of life. Maybe you're there today, maybe not. Maybe you're just coming out of one, you know? But uh, there'll be another one. That's just the nature of a fallen world. And we think, if only I could change my circumstances, everything will be okay. Well, maybe for a moment, but not for long. It all comes full circle, and here I am back, shuffling my feet, trying to make sense of it all. We usually come to God as a sufferer, needing to be soothed, not as sinners needing to be saved. But that's our greatest need, of course. That is our greatest need, a Savior and a Lord who helps us keep all the pieces together and our hope intact. This is a picture of the Cape of Good Hope. It wasn't always called that. That's, of course, in southern South Africa, southern south of the continent of Africa. It was first called the Cape of Storms because no sailor could get past. It was too rocky. It was too challenging. It was deadly. And they all went under until 1497, remember history, when Vasco da Gamas got around the Cape of storms. He got through the storms. The spices of the Orient were beckoning somebody to get there to increase trade and to change the world. And it did when Degamas did that. Changed the whole economic structure. And the name was changed to the Cape of Good Hope. Aren't you thankful there's one who came who's far greater than Degamas? <laughs> He's the one that took our crags and our rockiness, our rocky times and wanted to do us in and, and take us under. Storm after storm, that's what the evil one loves to do. He loves to destroy lies. He loves to paint questions of doubt in your life and my life. He wants us to get to question, does God really love me? Is he really with me? Is he real? Is this contrived? Is this made up? Is this really worth investigating? I tell you, friends, when you come to Jesus and you know he is Lord of all, when you see, you see, you investigate the truthfulness of Scripture and you emerge knowing that Christ really is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the Lord of, of lords forever and ever, nothing is the same. And he is your cape of good hope out of a life of storms. There is none like him, and that's why we worship him. Let's stand together.